This is episode 42 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2008 Annual Enrichment Conference, Catalytic Leadership with Bill Thrall. This is session four, Wednesday morning. Good morning. We'll get the lights here in a second. Um, listen, some of you have asked me, and I'm going to be book. I'm going to be build the bookseller for a minute. Uh, some of you have asked me about our book, True Faced, and I just want you to know they're out of table out here. If any of you would like to buy one, they can just do that. It's right out here. I just want to make that announcement. That's it. Yes. Yes, and there's a guide that goes with the book, and it's also out there. Thanks, Mark. Good. Good. Thanks. Um, the book, and just about everything we write, comes with a guide so that people like you're doing with our tools can experience the process. So as we encourage people to read the book, we encourage them to go through the guide. Uh, John Lynch is one of my associates, one of the authors. Uh, we have a DVD in which he communicates, and you're going to see part of that tonight at the banquet, communicates this message of the Room of Grace and also guides the people who are going through the book. It's, it's a small group de designed format, and um, you can use it in a variety of ways. Thanks, Mark. I really want to encourage you to think about using it as a tool. And a lot of what I've been teaching about the Room of Grace is communicated in that, in that book. As we get started this morning, um, I'm wondering, with you, I'm wondering what you're hearing and taking away so far. What's going on? in your understanding, what's going on in your experience so far in our time together? You happy, you glad, you angry, you wish you hadn't come? What's going on? Here's a brother, he says he's glad he came, that's good. Yes, sir. True, experiencing true Spiritual intimacy in a small group, that's pretty powerful. When we think we're managing sin, it's really managing us. Yeah. Ouch! Ouch, boy, is that true. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Somebody else? What's going on? How quickly an environment of grace can be established when you have willing people Risking trust. Nick, right? I'm finding that um, I'm being given the courage to trust. Yeah, he's discovering that you can actually have courage enhanced in experiencing trust. Think about that. Somebody else, just what's going on? Yeah. 
Amen. Because of who we are and all the stuff we've come out of, the only way we can truly have relationship is through grace. Well said. Yes, sir. Yeah. We have to be very intentional to live by grace. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, a bunch of unresolved issues keep getting in the way. And maybe it would be time to do something about them. Like, admit them. Like, how about that for a change? We really need each other. And that's really going to be our relationships of trust talk today. We really need each other. I was especially blessed this morning, and I trust you were with Dave's story. Mark, I, you have to be so encouraged because you're seeing the fruit of your transition. I'm hearing it in that guy's heart. Boy, that's got to be encouraging to each of you. And um, as we hear Dave's story, Somewhere deep in that man was a desire to be a learner. Unfortunately, for some of us with gray hair, we were taught truth that needed to be defended. And so we fought to be right. And we never intended that that would cause us to stop being learners. But it did. And it did. I'd like you to um, turn in your Bibles if you brought them with you this morning. I'd like to just do a little bit of reading and some sharing out of Romans chapter 5. I want to catch especially some key phrases here and then um, go into our lesson for the morning. Very familiar passage. And maybe we might look at it with a little bit of a tilt in our observation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now that's an important phrase. He didn't say into this grace whereby we've been saved. He said into this grace in which we what? We now stand. Into this grace which is now the basis for what is true about us. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. One of the beautiful byproducts of grace is hope. When we are in family, in relationship, and in churches that are without hope, it's because they've lost their mooring. 
regarding grace. Grace provides the basis for our hope. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Doesn't that bless you? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Now this next phrase is one I'd really like us to pause and ponder. And hope does not put us to what? To shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Grace in which we stand gives us hope that will not turn us to shame. Every person you'll ever meet because of sin is defined by shame. It is at the root of every dysfunction. Sin management, because it keeps us preoccupied with sin, will always keep us in our shame. And by the way, there is no hope in shame. By the way, there is no hope in shame. Grace does something. It creates a basis of life in us where we, because of who we are in Christ, are no longer under condemnation. What keeps us under condemnation? Our shame. Our shame. But the message of grace does something. It is more powerful than the message of sin. Now I know when we preach this, some will push back and say, look, look, we, we really do have to get sin right. I'm going to mention something to you. If we don't get grace right, we'll never get sin right. Because it is grace that is the basis upon which I stand, new in Christ, a new person who lives without being condemned. And that, by the way, is my hope. I don't know about you, but I don't like the story that my shame tells me about me. I don't like that story. And hope does not put us to shame because of something. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Powerful theological realities in these verses. Grace upon which we stand creates in us, because of who we are in Christ, a new basis of life in which I am not condemned, in which I have hope that will never lead me to shame because I have in me the love of God and the person of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. We know that theologically, right? But where sin increased, what does it say? Grace what? Abounded all the more. What does that say? That no matter how powerful sin is, grace wins. See, grace wins. But you know what? Most Christians do not believe that because they don't understand grace. They are living an in-between life. Most Christians live an in-between life. They're in between accepting Jesus and going to heaven. But the in-between life for them is not a life of hope except the hope of heaven. What happened to our joy? <laughs> Jesus said, my joy I give to you. What happened to our joy? Where is the confidence that God's grace is greater than our sin? I don't know this, but I keep picking on him. I'm going to pick on Mark today. I've picked on you enough. I don't know Mark. I don't say this to embarrass him, but I want to tell you something. He, like all men, has issues. And I need to be a person that is convinced that God's grace is greater than his issues. Or I will fear his issues. And when I fear his issues, it'll cost me his relationship every time. Every time. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. Sin reigned in death, and grace would reign in righteousness. How does righteousness best express itself? In what? In love. Sin reigns in death. Righteousness reigns through grace in love. That helps me look at some scriptures with a very different scope.
Perfect love casts out fear, for instance. For instance. Now, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have experienced fear? Go ahead, raise your hands. <laughs> how many of us believe that love is the answer to our fear? For many of us, we have been seduced into believing that therapy is the answer to our fear. It never will be. What about a verse that says, love covers a multitude of sin? You know that word cover there is the atonement word. You might want to, if you don't write it down, remember this. What if, what if we as Christians actually believed that our love was more powerful than our sin? Imagine that. What, what if, can you imagine if Jesus actually knew all of this when he said love one another just as I have loved you imagine if he knew all that imagine if when he said that he actually knew that if Ron and I were going to enter a relationship of dependent each other dependent on God's grace in a relationship of love that no matter what was true about either one of us, our love could cover that sin. Boy, I would, I would grab that in about a millisecond. I'd grab that in a millisecond. And by the way, that's what this guy at 27 experienced from that lady when she was 25. Because in that car that night, when I began to share with grace the guilt list, because of my weird, wounded background, I was convinced that if she really knew me, she would leave me. Because I didn't know what it really meant to love. My wife did not leave me. She actually moved toward me. What? I want you to know that for the first time in my life at 27 years old, because of this young woman's willingness to trust God with me, I admitted my shame. And that night began a process of breaking because it was in the open the power of the sin that was defining my life. Wow. What if Jesus knew all that? What if he actually knew all that when he said that David and I 
were to receive from him his love. And in return, we were to love one another like he loved us. Wow. You know, it would actually change the way we do church. Because it would change the way we do life. And you know what? It would give the world what it needs the most. Hope. You know what it longs for from us as Christians? Hope. And we give them a better sin management program. And they go, why would I want that? And they're right. So let's stop giving them that. Let's trust God's grace to create in us hope that we could love one another and them. And them. We were just with our four youngest grandchildren. It's before we came here. And we have a little, he was just four last week. We were at his birthday party, little Silas. And uh, his mom and dad are teaching the children about love. And he's so cute. He says, and we're to love, this is four years old now. And we're to love everyone we know. And his brother says, no, Silas, we're to love everyone. And he's four years old. He says, even the people we don't know? And then they have this little discussion around the table. And then, and then he's such a spunky little guy. And then they get all done with this big, the kids, this big discussion. And he always likes to get the last word. And he says, and then we're to love everyone we know. He's only four, but he sounds like a lot of us. Even though we hear the message of grace, and even though we hear how incredibly critical it is we love one another, we're like the four-year-old. Yeah, but the bottom line is we we really have to do something about our sin, right? We just, that's what we do. We go back into sin management in a millisecond. Okay, session number three. It's called Relationships of Trust. That was just kind of like a little add-on. Okay, this is session number three. Remember the rails. It says, without the rails, I have no safe place. Remember what the rails are? The rails of our little metaphor, they're what? Environments of grace and relationships of trust. Without environments of grace and relationships of trust, I now have no safe place to tell the truth. I have no safe place to develop emotional maturity. Remember, the great barrier 
to our emotionally maturing is our unresolved wounding. Our unresolved wounding will keep us stuck in time. I can be, because of my wounding, I can be emotionally mature in about a millisecond. All I have to do is believe my unhealthy self-story. And I'm trapped in time. And so are you. It is critical that we learn to process our unresolved wounding. Let me give you an insight that has been helpful in the counseling that I've had the privilege of doing over the years. When I am wounded, I must not only forgive that person for what they've done, I must forgive the, for the, I must forgive them for the effect of what they've done in me. So many of us will say, well, I forgave him, I forgave her. What we mean is, I forgave them for what they did. But I have yet to forgive them for its effect in me. My father had a brutal tongue. I do forgive him for what he said to me. But until I forgave him for the way it demeaned me, I was not healthy in that wounding. Look at the next one. To be protected from my own destructive tendencies. Well, there's a bunch of words. See, I need relationships in a, in a safe place. Some time ago now, we had a woman bring a woman friend of hers in to see me. And the uh, woman that came in said, Bill, you probably don't remember me, but I was part of your hand-in-hand -hand outreach ministry 20 years ago, and, and I remember that you were helping some people, and my friend here has just become a Christian, and I thought maybe because of some of the help you gave people, you could help her. And her friend was a woman who had her hair cut like a man. She had khaki clothing on and uh, had the foulest mouth of any woman I'd ever met and practiced there for a few minutes with me. And, um, <laughs> and I said these words to her. I said, if you will let us help you, I will protect 
you from other people knowing what is true about you till you can tell them. But if you choose to not let us help you, then I will protect other people from you. And some months later, uh, she came to me at church one day. And uh, she was kind of bubbling. And, and she said, can you, can you see the difference today? It's really hard for a man. I just want to tell you, let's see, you look like a woman today, and you looked like a woman yesterday. Um, you know, I don't think I get it. <laughs> and uh, it's a precious moment because she started to weep, and she said, I just want you to know, Bill, that um, today, I think she said she was 33. Today at 33, this is the first time since I was 10, that I've chosen to wear a dress because I finally have been able to accept the fact that I'm a woman and I believe this is the way God made me. Without the rails I have no safe place to build character. As I said yesterday, character is developed in relationship but it is tested in isolation. Character is developed in relationship, but it's tested in isolation. I'll keep saying it just to remind us, but it is so imperative that we understand how much we need each other. Someone mentioned that this morning. Christianity is a relational faith. It is a relational faith. It is a faith that is lived out in relationship with God and others. It is a relational faith. What is true, what is true about your relationship with God is always evidenced by how you treat others. How you treat others is always an evidence of what is true about your relationship with God. So that I need you because something is true about me. I never see me clearly. I need you to help clarify who I am. Wow. Therefore, all character words are words of relationship. And then I want to come back to this one-liner I started with. The degree to which I trust you is the degree to which you can love me, no matter how much love you have for me. Integrity is critical to the process of our character development. Think about this definition. Integrity is that quality of character that elicits trust from others. 
Integrity is that quality of character that elicits trust from others. Integrity is not for your benefit. Your integrity is always for the benefit of others. Because your integrity is the basis for their trusting you. You may never get a greater gift than the gift of someone's trust. Imagine if we thought that way. Imagine if we actually thought that our integrity was important so we could be trusted, so we could love. Huh. Relationships of trust free us to receive and give love. We believe, as it says here, that love is the process of meeting needs. Love is the process of meeting needs. Every one of us this morning got up with needs. Our needs are never weaknesses. They are that part of us designed by God so we could be loved. Hey, God is the God of what? Love. And the God of love created a being called man that could experience love. He created us to be loved. But in order for us to experience love, he created in us needs. Like, for instance, every one of us got up this morning with the need for security. It ain't going to go away. You get up every day that way. Well, no, not me. I've gotten over that one. What? Listen to God's love. I will never leave you or forsake you. I would call that commitment. Do you know what commitment does? Commitment meets the need that we have for security. Insecure people are people who do not have confidence in the commitment of others. I know what we want to do. We want to say that insecurity is their problem. And let's give them to somebody to help them with their problem. But what if as a community we believe that their insecurity was our problem because what we really want to do is we want to learn how to meet that need in them where they would trust our commitment. I need your commitment. Everyone in this room got up today with the need for acceptance. Every day you get up that way. 
And that's that love of God that communicates to us that you don't earn love. It's called agape. You don't earn it. You don't earn love. I heard David talk about his value system was getting his task done. He didn't, he didn't say this, I'll, I'll add it to his story. He got his task done and that made him more acceptable. But what if we accepted David because we love David? And we also appreciate you get your stuff done. Yeah, let's get the stuff done. Yeah. We're still going to get the stuff done, right? <laughs> still going to get the stuff done. Now watch this next series of statements. I need to be trusting you to meet my needs. That needs to be the motivation of your heart toward me. It needs to be the motivation of my heart toward you. Therefore, I must acknowledge that I have needs... I need to find someone like you who has the desire to meet one of my needs with an expression of your love. I must then choose to let you meet my need. There are lots and lots of people who because of their wounding do not know how to let others love them. I will stand in line. It's a story of Grace's challenge to me. Bill, why won't you let me love you? Why won't you do that? Until I let you love me, I will never experience your love. And some of us don't understand that it's our lack of letting that is keeping us from being loved. It's not because there's no one out there to love us. And when my needs are met, I am fulfilled. I want to use affirmation very quickly as an example of experiencing love. My need to be affirmed Look at that next little paragraph. Affirmation is a love word that ministers to the heart. It is an honest appreciation for who we are, what we do, and what we mean to others. Affirmation is a love word that ministers to the heart. It is an honest appreciation for who we are, what we do, and what we mean to others. God the Father practiced affirmation in his expression to the Son when he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was an expression of God's affirming love. For your own study, and it was very helpful to me, you might want to go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, and you get a whole series of Paul's affirming statements regarding Timothy. It is amazing to read the affirmation of the apostle. He says when he thinks about him, he, Paul, experiences joy. 
He says, I remember your tears, Timothy. He said, Timothy, I know of your faith. He loved him well. Affirmation's motivation is for the benefit of the one affirmed. Affirmation gives to give unlike manipulation, which what? What does it say? Gives to give. And so often, if we're going to affirm Pam, so often because she's like us, when we go to affirm her, quietly her heart says, what does he want? What does he want? Look at the next statement. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. Affirmation may involve correcting my theology and vocabulary. Affirmation is love and does not what? And love does not what? Inflame sin. See, part of our problem is that we're concerned that if we were to affirm Stephen and really tell him how much we appreciate him and all that he does, that he's going to get a big head. And we're so scared to death in our sin management theology that we might be the authors of sin in him that we would rather go 20 years and never say to him how much we appreciate him. Hello? Listen carefully. Affirming Stephen never, ever, ever will give him a big head. It will rejoice his heart because love is never the author of sin. Never. Bad theology is the author of sin. But not love. Think about that. Then it says this. Critical attitudes and words diminish in a community of affirmation. I told you yesterday I want to catch the guy who added criticism to the spiritual gifts. But listen to this, critical attitudes and words diminish in a community of affirmation. Because affirmation does something, it touches the heart. And when the heart is touched, listen to this, and when the heart is touched, the moment to trust is there. Think about that. Affirmation clarifies my identity. Affirmation clarifies my identity. Children that grow up in homes where they are not affirmed are never sure who they are. Christians that grow up in churches where they are not affirmed have great theology, but they never know who they really are. Affirmation reinforces my confidence. Well, you don't want to have that. You know, if you give that, boy, that... You got him with a big head and me with confidence. Oh boy, this guy's a heretic. Can you imagine what's going to happen? 
Yeah, we're actually going to get healthy. Wow, would that be something? Yeah. It develops my character because your affirmation speaks truth into who I really am. A couple of uh, Father Days ago, um, my wife, we have Father's Day dinner at our home, and Grace put under everybody's plate, without their knowing, she knew everybody would be seated. She had a little card under everybody's plate, and when we got all done with dinner, she said, we take the card away. And every one of the cards had a special question or statement or assignment for every, everybody in the family. That would be our son and his wife and three sons, our daughter, her husband, and two children, Grace and I. And I don't remember the cards, but I remember this card. Our son Bill, in his 40s, and Grace had him answer this question. Bill, uh, tell us who your best friend is and describe them to us. And all of us were convinced that Bill was going to tell us about his friend David, who has been Bill's friend since the fourth grade. David has never married, and David actually bought the house behind the alley from Bill and Charlotte. He's that close to Bill. But we thought that's who he would say. Well, Bill didn't say that. Bill said, without a doubt, my, my greatest friend is my sister Wendy. And there wasn't a dry eye at that moment at the table. And he went on to describe his sister, our daughter. It was unbelievably precious to hear his affirmation of his sister and all that she meant to him. They actually went to college together. And David and Bill and Wendy were roommates in college. And then Grace said at that meal, she said, you know, I probably would have forgotten this, but when Bill met his wife, Charlotte, they were on a mission trip in uh, France when they met. And uh, he came home, and, and Grace said to him, well, Bill, tell us about Charlotte. And Bill said, Mom, she's a lot like Wendy. I want to tell you something. Those two children of hers, both in their 40s, have phenomenally benefited from the affirmation that they have permission to say. Their kids were in that room that day. It's a pretty powerful moment. I, I really believe my daughter, Wendy, was strengthened that day. Don't you? I think so. Affirmation does something. It heals my wounds. Because of your love, I then have access to be able to be honest about me. Okay, now we're going to do an exercise together, conveniently called affirmation. 
And what I'd like you to do is break into groups, please, of four people. Or whatever number you like. <laughs> you know, this is, this, is so, this is so much fun. You know, I don't know if you remember, last night I said to break into groups of five. It's like that group that I said to write those papers. Either that or a lot of people can't count. So just break into groups, whatever size you like, I don't care. Let me just have one of those. Okay, some of you have already done this because we did it yesterday, but I want you to do it now in this context. There's two pages. One is a page of an example. What you're going to do is you're going to take this page and use it as an example in your group. Just like you did yesterday, you're going to choose one person out of your group. Each of you choose the same person. That would help. And what you're going to do is you're going to circle every word that you believe describes that person. And then you're going to take five of those statements and put them in the little blank space. See that? Right here, the blank space. Five words, circle a bunch, five. And then you're going to share with that person. Okay? You're going to look, you're going to give them the word, you're going to tell them why you said it. When you get done affirming this group here, say they're going to do the group, they're going to do Karen, and they're going to tell Karen what they think, and then they're going to say to Karen, listen carefully, let me have your attention, please. Let me have your attention, please. When you're finished in this group affirming Karen, you're going to say to Karen, Karen, what did you hear, and how did it make you feel? Now, there's a very important rule. When you're being affirmed, you do not get to talk. You get to listen. Okay, let's break into groups. At least four people in a group, please. We're experiencing uh, a process, and we just don't have enough time to do all of it. But I, if I could be a voice of encouragement, I would really strongly, strongly urge you to take this tool home with you and do it. Yes, sir? Can we get copies of those forms or buy them from you? Yes, you can just get them from the website. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I just want to encourage you uh, to use the tool because it is so helpful in the family context, in small group, in church leadership. Well, let's talk about your experience. If you were a person this morning and you were affirmed, you were somebody in a group and you were affirmed, what was that like for you to be affirmed? Anybody, what was it like? Every group had somebody affirmed. Yes, it felt good. Very good. Somebody else, what was it like to be affirmed? Encouraging, thank you. What else? Very humbling. Why? Why? Tell us. Yeah, sometimes it's very just hard to hear those good things. Somebody else, what was it like for you to be affirmed? A little bit embarrassing. Yeah. Somebody else, what was it like for you? 
Affirming, yeah, let's talk about that. What was it like to be the affirmer? What was that like? He, this brother says it was easier. Feels good. It was fun. By the way, it works. It felt like we were doing God's work. Yeah, it felt good, like we were actually doing something good. God's work. How about that? The power of reality was applied to a person's heart. The power of reality in the name of love applied to a person's heart. I don't know if our theology can get any better than that. You made a new friend in the process. That's not a bad deal. Yes. It's like giving and receiving gifts. It's like giving and receiving gifts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for telling me you like me. Now tell me what you don't like. Yeah, it's that old manipulation tape that we just keep playing and playing and playing. I want to encourage you with something. Learn to believe that what these people just said about you is true. Don't, don't downplay it. Don't demean it. Don't get real spiritual. You know, if you were real spiritual, you'd go, I don't need to hear this. You know. Yeah, yeah, liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah, I don't, don't, I don't need to hear this. You know, I'm so godly, I'm above this. Hello? What other responses do you just have? Yes, please. Yeah, thanks. You hear what Mark's saying? He's saying, what about that person who's being affirmed is still playing the tape, but what if you really knew me? What if you really knew me? And let me encourage some of us who play that tape. Here's the, here's the statement. What if I really knew me? What if I really knew me? Because what if I was who you told me to be? who you told me I am instead of the tape that I believe about who I am. My, one of the um, effects, interestingly, that I experienced of my childhood wounding is I carried this incredible burden of not being able to accept what was true about me, so I sabotaged opportunity. <laughs> I want you to hear what I just said. I had to have a really heart-to-heart -heart talk one day. I'll put it the other way. God had to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with me one day. And it sounded something like this. Bill, I made you a leader. When are you going to accept that reality? 
Well, I'm not that arrogant, God. No, he was saying, no, that's how unhealthy you are. You can't accept who I've made you to be. So I would say, Mark, the helpful statement is, but what if you really knew me? But the really good response is, what if you really knew you? And could accept affirmation as a statement of truth. It'll have a powerful effect on your healing. Um, what I wanted to do now, you can just stay in your groups because I'm not going to keep you much longer. Um, I need to apologize because I didn't give you a break. I was supposed to do that before you had the exercise, you know. So if you don't get a break, that means you have to stay over half an hour. Uh, <laughs> I have a really, nothing to do with our morning, but I just remembered a great funny story of a friend of mine. It just fit my silliness just now, only for him it was real. When he was a boy, his mother, and he had three brothers, so there were five in the family. She invited the pastor over for lunch, and the pastor brought his wife and a child that she wasn't expecting. So she said to the boys, uh, when it comes time to pass the chicken, I don't have enough, please don't take any. And so they didn't. And then she realized that she hadn't prepared herself or the boys well, so she didn't have enough dessert either, but she didn't tell the boys what to do, so she said to the boys, because you didn't eat any chicken, you can't have any dessert. <laughs> Now that's how you cover your own behind, but it leaves a little bit of scarring in my friend Bernie's life. And I just thought of that when I said to you that because I didn't give you a break, I'm going to keep you over. Uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to finish our time in these sessions by just going to the next section on... Um, on humility, and I'll just take a few minutes this morning. Because what I want to do is I want to come back to the first talk that I gave on that first night. And you remember that we were in Luke chapter 18. And I told you the parable of the man who Jesus described as those who trust in themselves. You remember that? But we only got as far as the first character. We, we only got as far as the Pharisee. We didn't get into the uh, second character, who was the publican, the tax collector. So let me finish the story. Verse 13 of Luke 18. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, his position was a position of humility before God. He was trusting God, knowing that he himself could not meet his own need. 
And this is what Jesus says. I tell you, this man being the publican, went down to his house justified. In this one verse, verse 14 of Luke 18, we have two of the great themes of the New Testament. The first one is the justification of the sinner. How does that happen? Through trust. And every act of trust is an act of humility. And God's promise is that he gives what? Grace to the humble. Maybe you've never thought about this. Could it be that when God said, trust in the Lord with all your heart, that he was telling us that so he could give us his grace? Could that be? Listen to the second part. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the New Testament, we have the theme of God justifying the sinner and the theme of God exalting the saint. Both of them are based on trust. Both of them are rooted in humility. As you have received Christ Jesus your Lord, so walk in him. Some of us even cringe at the thought of the exaltation of the saint. Like, well that shouldn't be in the New Testament because I'm just a worm. No, whenever we cringe at that, it's because we don't understand grace. God, in justifying the sinner, has put the saint into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Don't let your sin management theology rob you of God's intentions for you. Don't let that happen. That's what this is about, this message of humility. It's a message of our justification and it's a message of our destiny. It's both. It's the sinner becoming the saint. It's the saint being able to live out of who God says they are. Now let's just go to this outline pretty quickly, and I, I know you're tired, and I talk a lot, so we'll shorten at least one of them. God opposes the proud, it says, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humility attracts God's grace. It's the process of trusting. 
Grace is always unmerited, but it's not always uninitiated. I can choose to trust God. Therefore, that definition that we use in our ministry for humility is, humility is trusting God and others with me. Often, our associates were, were asked this question, well, how would, how would I know if I'm humble? I mean, isn't humility one of those words where the minute you talk about it, you ain't got it? And if I ain't got it, how would I know I have it? And if I don't know I have it, how would I ever know if I have God's grace? We've, we've created a riddle that doesn't have an answer. So maybe we could think about it this way. There are relational evidences of grace. Let's take the left-hand column. How I view others is an evidence of my humility. How did the Pharisee view others? With what? With contempt. Because he what? He lacked humility. If I view others with compassion, check that off as an evidence of your humility. Look at the next one. How I need others. The Pharisee said, Oh God, I'm so thankful I'm not like other men like that guy. Pointing to the publican, who, by the way, that day left justified. Okay. So what happens here is, how I need others is in fact an expression of whether I'm humble or not. In our culture, men are predominantly either directly or indirectly taught to trust no one. Well, I'm going to tell you something. The day you choose to trust no one is the day you are choosing to never be loved. Look at the next one. How I let others love and minister to me. That's an evidence of whether I'm humble or not. How do I let others love and minister to me? Do, do, I, do I erroneously see my role as a pastor as one above? Way back in 1976, there was a campus crusade event called Here's Life America. Some of you who are older will remember that. You were there. There you go. And um, it was a national program, and our city was involved in it, and several major churches had a part, and I was on the committee, and, and we had a little celebration banquet. And uh, that night, I really, really got upset. My wife had a hold on to my jacket and say, Bill, it's not your business, can we cool down? Because the commentator said to one of the pastors whose churches was there, and he said to the pastor, Pastor, say Smith, what did you learn from this? Now listen to his answer. He said, I learned that in my church there are some people who love Jesus almost as much as I do. 
Honestly, I almost got out of my chair. It was, it was all I could do to contain myself. That's a bad theology, folks. Humility is when I let you love me. Humility is when I let you minister to me. When we first started Open Door Fellowship, because I, I'd gone to Bible college, but I wasn't necessarily trained as a pastor, I was a young CPA, now in ministry, and I wasn't sure how my messages were affecting our church. And there was a young woman in our church named Peggy, who we were convinced just had the gift of mercy. And I went to Peggy one day and I said, Peggy, I really need you to help me. And she looked at me like, me? I said, yeah, I said, you're gifting. Um, I would like you to critique my messages for me. I'd I want to meet with you. I feel like I'm too hard, I'm too edgy. She said, me? I said, yeah, Peggy, you, I'm talking to you, it's you, Peggy. <laughs> and uh, so we met on Mondays. And uh, then it, it was too hard on me, so we met on Wednesdays, because I feel <laughs> I needed a little more time, because uh, she actually did what I asked her to do. And, uh, <laughs> But, but I'm convinced that over those first couple of years that she had a profound effect on teaching me how I affect you. Who are you letting teach you? Think about it. Look at the right-hand column. Humility is believing how those I trust view me. We just did that with affirmation. Be careful. If you downplay affirmation, it's an expression that you lack humility because you're choosing to not trust what those who you trust say about you. Believing that others actually need me, that's a hard one for some of us. To actually mature through my woundedness, to actually believe that I could have a part in your life. Do we, we know this, right? The goal is not that we get healthy. Healthy is a step toward the goal. For many, many people, their whole life goal is to get healthy. Bad goal. Healthy is a step toward the goal. You are chosen of God for the benefit of others. You. Well, not me. Yeah, you. You look around the room and you go, I'm not sure I choose everyone in here, but, but God has because that's what he's done. And then the next one says, believing I can love and minister to others. Believing that I can. That woman that I told you about, 
that came in as that militant lesbian woman who wore a dress after several months is now in a ministry full-time helping street people get healthy. She wouldn't have dreamed that dream ten years ago for all the money in the world. Many leaders, oh, excuse me, next slide. I cannot claim humility before God if I do not let your affirmation, guidance, and love affect who I am becoming. I cannot claim humility before God if I do not let your affirmation, guidance, and love affect who I am becoming. Back to this phenomenon called Christianity, which is a faith of relationship. It's a faith of my needing you and you needing me. And imagine ourselves as instruments of God for our maturing. The church in our country has never had less effect on our culture than it has today. Ever. It's a condition of our immaturity. It's a condition of the immaturity of the person in the pew. Instead of being salt, we are ineffective. There is no power in our witness. Because we have not learned to grow up. And we cannot grow up without learning a mutual dependency. Isn't that interesting? We're trapped. Thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people are trapped. I'm, like you, I'm really concerned about it. Look at the next thing. Many leaders demand trust out of position or power. Others, being leaders, others realize they must earn trust. Few realize that to earn trust, one must first learn trust. Where would we learn it? Hopefully in a safe place where we can be honest. Now, I want to say something about the process. Uh, when you get into your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the older you get, the harder it is to learn something relationally because it's clumsy. And we're so proper that we don't have the humility to be clumsy. 
years ago when I was pastoring, a, a couple came in to see me. And uh, uh, it happened quite a bit. Maybe it was just because of the way I consoled. But the guy would come in and he'd kind of be down like this, and the woman would have a pad of paper with notes. And, um, and this, this couple was no different. And uh, he came in and just kind of sat there, and she took out her notes, and, and she started to express some real frustrations with him. And, um, and I said, wait, wait just a minute. I said, what? what's, what's at the core? Why are you here? And she said, well, I'm so frustrated because he is so unbelievably non-romantic. He's like a stone. And uh, he just kind of, yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I said to her, um, well, why don't you teach him? Well, if I taught him, it would be so corny because it would be so make-believe and, and it's, I, wouldn't, I couldn't do it. Now, now listen to my next statement. Where would you like him to learn? <laughs> I want to tell you something. Grace is messy. Because we're messy. You know what? We're not going to. Because say this very carefully. You are not going to add these principles to the way you've done life. These are not add-ons. These are add-ins. And you know what? It's going to be sloppy and clumsy and messy. Because we are. And so, John, if he were speaking right now, he would say, some of you may not want to do that. And then he would ask this question, and how's it working for you the other way? Where else would we learn? Where else would we learn? It has to be in the context of the church as designed by God. I started you off with a unmet expectations tool. Remember that? And a lot of you communicated stories of significantly being hurt in the church, by the church. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, we have got to figure out a way to stop the nonsense. We've got to figure out a way to allow ourselves to learn grace, practice it in love, and let it be for a season clumsy. I love to play golf. I just love to play golf. I've been playing golf for a long time. And I'm, a, I'm an okay golfer. I've got about a 12 handicap. That's okay. That's okay. I like that. A friend of mine, his son, 
is an ex-golf tour guy, great teacher, and he set up some lessons for me with this golf pro guy, who I happen to know since he was a baby. He's a great golfer. And he's very gracious because he calls me Uncle Bill. And he, sa he says to me, well, uh, Uncle Bill, we've played golf, so I, I know your swing. And what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to practice something. And so he put some balls down, and, and I didn't do very well. And then he put some more balls, and I didn't do very well. Then he got a bucket of balls, <laughs> and I didn't do very well. And he said to me, um, now listen to his words. He said, do you want me to correct your swing, or do you want me to teach you how to play golf? Hmm. I said, what's the difference? He said, well, if I correct your swing, that'll take about two lessons. But he said, if you want me to correct your golf, then you have to practice 10 to 12 hours between every lesson, or I won't teach you the next lesson. Oh, I wanted so much to just take those two lessons. Because <laughs> I wanted to get my 12 to a 10. My backyard looks like a battlefield. I've got more holes and divots. Because I want to tell you something, it is really hard to learn to hit a golf ball right. It is really hard. And I'm really clumsy. And right now, I'm shooting on any given day between 78 and 102. That's a big variance. Because when I stand over the ball, oh, I want to hit it my old way, and I don't trust the new way, so I don't hit it very well. It's clumsy. We've got to understand this. Please do not leave this time with me with a whole bunch more head stuff. Imagine this becoming heart stuff that you intend to practice in relationship, even though it's clumsy. Does that make sense? Well, even though we're a few minutes early, we've got a few things they want to do before we finish. I want to pray with you, and I want to thank you for this time. We'll see you at the banquet tonight, some of you at lunch in a few minutes. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time, just for the preciousness, Lord, of connecting, just watching my brothers and sisters with these tools, and just enjoying each other, Lord. What a blessing. Father, we just commit ourselves to you. Spirit of God, would you refresh us with an understanding of your grace? And Lord, would you convince us that it's okay, no matter what our age,
to practice this, even though it's clumsy. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.